subscribe to Tripod Talk Radio for conversations with veterinarians, oncologists, rehab therapists, and other experts discussing amputation for dogs and cats. Find more info, helpful care tips, and a free gift at tripods.com slash radio. He's got a few miles left, knock on wood. He's a three-legged dog, but he's still pretty good. Thank you for tuning in to Tripod Talk Radio, where we're spreading the word that it's better to hop on three legs than limp on four. Hosted by Jim and Renee and Wyatt Ray of the Tripods Blogs community at tripods.com. Jerry's Place for canine amputees and their people. Hello and thank you for listening. This is Tripod Talk Radio and today is September 27th, 2017. One of the most common questions new Tripods members ask when their dog or cat needs an amputation is, what about prosthetics? In most cases, the pet has already had an amputation, and that's too bad because the proper use of prosthetics requires planning ahead, planning ahead of amputation. It also requires an investment of both money and time necessary for proper rehab and training. In short, there's an awful lot to consider when it comes to using orthotic devices for amputee animals. That is why we are honored to have a very special guest returning to the show today. Dr. Denise Marcelin-Little is a leading expert in small animal orthopedic surgery, now teaching at the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. He is here with us to answer frequently asked questions about artificial limbs for pets. Welcome to the show, doctor, and thank you for joining us again. Thank you. Hi, doctor. This is Renee. Thank you so much for being here. Hello again, Renee. I'm delighted to be back. Thank you for your hospitality. Looking forward to the show. Yes, thank you. Well, we didn't even get to really touch on this subject last time you were on Tripod Talk. So um, this is a big, a big topic, and you are the best person to discuss it with us. So I, I really, really appreciate it. Um, I, would, I would love to hear more about what you're doing at, uh, at Davis right now and what you've done in the past about... Um, helping animals live better with artificial limbs. Well, I'm uh, I'm delighted to talk about this. I always regret that we don't discuss that enough, including among veterinarians. We, as veterinarians, generally don't learn a lot about prosthetics during vet school, and so I would generally not expect veterinarian or my veterinarian to be very knowledgeable about it. Knowledge arrives a little bit randomly, unfortunately. There is not enough discussion quite yet about artificial limbs, so we'll have the opportunity to discuss things in detail during this program. And I want everybody to imagine that there are two very different types of of prosthesis, if you want. There are prosthesis that are removable. We call them exoprosthesis. Prosthesis, exoprosthesis means an external prosthesis or outside prosthesis, uh, meaning that it's just something that's placed around a body part. And then we have endoprosthesis or transdermal prosthesis, which are prosthesis that are secure to the bone and come out of the skin through a little bit of a a hole, if you want. The, The skin is connected around them, and then there is a little piece of metal that goes out and it's connected to another little piece of metal or to the foot that that connects to the ground. Very few people do 
the kind of prosthesis that are attached to the bone, the transdermal osseointegrated prosthesis. They're called osseointegrated because the bone often grows into them. And so the transdermal osseointegrated prosthesis are, um, they are rare. I will talk a bit more about them. Uh, I have um, been doing a few of those over time, over the last 10 years or so. I have some perspective on them. I can discuss their features and the process and why it's so unusual at this point. The other prosthesis maybe that's kind of more important for us to discuss is um, just a traditional exoprosthesis or socket prosthesis that are placed around the limbs, and they also, it's also a, a little bit of a different universe that, that we can discuss further. Oh, my gosh. I am so excited about this. Um, you know, we, I, I do find that, that it is true that the conversation about artificial limbs um, does not happen a whole lot in um, normal veterinary medicine um, with a, a family vet who's about to amputate a, a dog or cat's leg. Um, most people don't even know that it's, it can be an option uh, mm-hmm. until they see something on YouTube, and they might see a, a, a dog um, trying to take his first steps with the um, external limbs that you, you described. Um, as far as the implants go, uh, I know you've made some pretty big headlines with your work in that area. So I, I would like to discuss that first because it's, it's really fascinating and it seems so futuristic, but the reality is that the future is here and you are doing them. So, so let's talk about this. You, you mentioned it's called osseo integration. Um, can, you, can you tell us more about that? Yes. So osseo integration is something that is used routinely for total joint mm-hmm. replacement. It's uh, been mm-hmm. uh, happening over the last uh, maybe 60 years or so. The first uh, osseointegration was kind of discovered uh, when a bone was placed in contact with a porous metal, and then the bone will grow into the porous metal and can become very solidly attached for life. Basically, bone can grow into a textured metal surface and be permanently connected to it. We use osseointegration in total joint replacement routinely, and we trust it. And, you know, if you supply it the right way, it can be very safe and very successful over the long term. So a bit uh, later, maybe in the 1980s, uh, there was a human medical doctor in Sweden um, that decided to, uh, his father actually, uh, the, the doctors, uh, Brannemark in Sweden, the father was one of the inventors of, of dental implants that are stabilized with osseointegration. And his son, an orthopedic surgeon, wanted to apply that to bone. So the Brannemark group in Sweden uh, developed transdermal osseointegrated implants for humans in the 1980s in Sweden. And, hmm. you know, it's not a very popular surgery. It's not done very often. The rehabilitation takes more than a year. It actually takes several surgical procedures, or at least two, uh, one to implant a little piece of titanium inside the femur, and then the second one to attach something 
later on after the bone has grown into the titanium. It's not something that is kind of compatible with companion animals to wait a year like that and have mm-hmm. multiple surgeries. So back uh, around 2005, uh, our group at NC State uh, decided to kind of push transdermal osseointegration forward by doing implants that resembled a little bit more what we were doing in total joints, implants that would provide immediate stability. And we started with patients that had lost or were missing two limbs because they were at a great disadvantage. Being two-legged is a real, real big problem compared to being three-legged. And so we worked with patients that were missing both of their back feet early on, cats and dogs, and we developed a technique to do transdermal osseointegration using implants that were customized to the patient bone, bone shape, bone surface, bone size. And uh, we did, uh, you know, dogs and cats and back legs and front legs. So they are obviously, uh, it's a complex process where we would do a CT scan and then design an implant and then 3D printed implant, you know, again, adapted to the bone that we work with. And we can't replace an entire limb. In fact, you'll hear the same thing in a few minutes when we discuss socket prosthesis. You can never really replace a complete limb. That's very, uh, you know, impossible at this point. You can replace lower portions of limbs. So we do a much better job with missing feet, maybe missing bone below the knee and below the elbow. But if the elbow or the knee are missing at this point, uh, it's very unlikely that we would get a device, be it also integrated or external, that will work well. So we always want to save as much bone as possible if we are planning the use of any kind of prosthesis because nothing works better than what you had in the first place. So osseointegration um, integration is basically the placement of these implants in contact with the bone. We reconstruct the tissue around it, and we develop, you know, little feet that are connected to this prosthesis, sometimes with little fail-safe device. We call those mechanical fuse, which are basically little zones that break before the bone breaks, so protect the implant-bone interface. And that's mm-hmm. uh, transdermal also integration for you. It's still a investigative procedure. It's costly. It's complicated. It's not for everyone. It, it requires kind of bandage change, you know, close attention to the, the interface between the skin and the metal. But, you know, I have one that has been around in a cat um, uh, for nine years. That's, you know, in happy cat there up in Ohio that uh, has done well for nine years and has wow. greatly uh, improved his life. And, and we've had our, our share of complications like uh, everyone. So there have been about four, five groups that have done transdermal also integrated implants kind of evolving a bit independently and using different strategies. And our group has, uh, you know, has done... Uh, surgery, we've evaluated some aspects of it, and we still think it's, you know, it's not ready for prime time. It's very complex and, you know, Mm -hmm. should be limited to only a few patients at this stage. Right, and and I know that, you know, it's it's definitely not uh, something that everyone is is asking about, but when it does make headlines, it just seems like such a an awesome possibility. Um, just about a week ago, we had a, a tripod member 
whose dog was diagnosed with osteosarcoma two years ago, he, he lost the leg to that. Well, the, the bone cancer came back in one of his remaining limbs, mm-hmm. and it was an opposing limb. So mm-hmm. the, um, the individual decided to go ahead with the amputation on the, um, the next leg. Um, the dog is a smaller breed. He's, a, he's some kind of um, bull, um, bulldog mix. But mm-hmm. he's he's doing pretty well. I mean, he's getting around on two legs. But you know, if 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 the possibility for her to do an implant was there, I'm I'm sure she would have have taken it. Yeah. Um. Exactly. It 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 just seems like that's the perfect dog. Um. For this kind of mm-hmm. thing. Now it, it is a big commitment, right? I mean, it's like you are in it for the long haul. Tell me who. Who, what people and pets are the best candidates that you look for when, when you're going to attempt something like this? Well, we would look at, you know, situation where maybe, you know, I think there are uh, medical factors and there are dog factors and there are dog and owner factors in maybe identifying candidates for it. So I'll go over that pretty quickly. Uh, medical factors, we would probably want to have a, a fair prognosis. You know, you don't want to be having a patient that has other comorbidities, other problems, or a problem with a, a terrible prognosis. You know, maybe you have a tumor and your chest also has a lot of tumor and the odds mm-hmm. are for survival are, lo- are low. And so, therefore, you know, maybe it's not the wisest thing to invest all that time and money into something that might even not come to fruition because we we won't be ready for surgery by the time the lungs will stop working or the heart. So we we need to have a basic health, if you want, and a certain prognosis. And there are ways when we have cancer to check that whether there is cancer in other parts of the body. You know, a bone scan, for example, might tell us if other parts of the body already have cancer, or the bones, or the long bones, and that might be a wise thing to do. We also want maybe to have, you know, to be reasonably healthy altogether, healthy kidneys, healthy heart, healthy head, you know, good eyes, you know, to have some dogs that is not going to be too compromised otherwise, if you want. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. osteointegration makes less sense. The patient has to be reasonably well socialized. We're going to have to do a lot of bandage changes. We're going to have to do a lot of, you know, training. We expect the dogs that kind of follow instruction and behave reasonably well. Otherwise, you know, we're probably going to be in trouble. And then the owner has to be obviously part of the the team that is going to make that successful. Maybe an owner that's willing to uh, change bandages and or be taught how to change bandages, an owner that follows instructions for activity that can communicate effectively if we have a problem so we don't uh, get into a situation where somebody actually feels unable or unwilling to manage the, the, the surgery after. Like we discussed, you know, we may need to trim the hair at the junction with the metal, check it daily, disinfect it, uh, maybe wrap it in a certain way, and not everyone is uh, willing or able to do that for the rest of the dog's life. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's a huge commitment. It seems. It seems like you're. Uh, I've heard somebody refer to it as you're you're married to the vet team for that whole experience. Well, no, I mean, I haven't seen. You know, if 
it's all like depending on how fortunate you might be, you know, these things are uh, will have a range of complications, and so we're going to make sure that, and you know, there will be complications that are associated with the procedure itself. You know, you could have a mm-hmm. bone that breaks, and that that might be, you know, require some major endeavor to try to save the situation. Uh, you also could have a problem with the prosthetic foot. That is quite common, and so you may need a new part. You know, they are little modular feet, and so you may need a new part. You may need a new mechanical fuse, a new sole. I had a transdermal mm-hmm. uh, implant in a dog from New Jersey. I spent time in New Jersey and in Florida, and he would walk about four miles a day, and he was kind of dragging his foot a little bit, an Akita, and he would drag his foot, and he would go through a beginning. We would make form feet, and the, the foot would wear down in about one day. So every day oh my we gosh. kind of had to, to do a new foot for that dog. We were so delighted he was using his leg so well, and everybody was very happy. But we had to kind of actually design a slightly different foot that where you could go buy a shoe, you know, at, at, in a sports store, a dog shoe. Uh-huh. And then uh, the little dog booty would actually serve as a foot for our prosthetic limb. And so that was kind of a, an interesting strategy to, to take care of this, <laughs> this, you know, minor complication, if you want, of having needing a, a maintenance team, you know, to make things for the dog on a very regular basis. But, you know, you say, um, you mentioned that you have to be kind of, paying attention, you know, most people pay attention to their dogs anyway and, and interact yeah. with their dogs. You have to kind of channel your energy in a certain way. But everything you, you say about paying attention to the dog is also going to apply to an exoprosthesis or socket prosthesis. So ah, if you, if you have point. a prosthesis that you place on a dog, you really have to check the skin every day, the device every day, maintain the device, replace the portions that are wearing down, fine-tune things, and so the same amount of attention really will be required regardless of the device that uh, will be used for the dog. So it's not a huge disadvantage from the transdermal cell integration to, to the exoprosthesis. Uh, mm-hmm. They all kind of require the same amount of work, I think. That's a, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about it like that. Um, as far as the the um, the implants, do you think that there will ever come a time when they totally replace the need for amputation or um, or even the exoprosthetic? Do you think that'll be the main thing that you know well, uh, surgeons um, do? I think there are a range of emerging options in orthopedics that will potentially will eliminate the need to do amputations. And they include, just like you could imagine an artificial ankle and foot or an artificial wrist and hand, Mm -hmm. uh, someday I think we will do artificial portions of bones above, like an artificial arm and shoulder or an artificial hip and femur. And so I think the combination, I think the solution may be to eliminate the need for amputation uh, comes from 3D printing implants, whether they stick out of the skin or not, for upper part mm-hmm. of the limbs, they are going to be all internal. And so that's something that I've been very interested in for a while and I'm focusing on is to actually create these 
3D printed prosthesis that are able to either connect with a commercial implant for a total knee or a total hip and actually mm-hmm. replace a larger missing portion of a limb. So I think wow. the combination of all these solutions as they become faster to prepare and cheaper to make and easier to implant, uh, that is uh, hopefully will be eliminating the need for um, amputation in the future. We're not quite ready with all these things because they are still slow and expensive and complex. Uh, they are... Uh, we're getting closer every day, but we are a number mm-hmm. of years away from, from having these options. You know, and again, one or two or three people doing those things is very different from ha- having access to it wherever you are uh, around the country and around the world. It's very diff- it takes a long time for us to do things well for the first time, and then to teach everyone to do those things uh, takes uh, more time. Right, right. Well, we we certainly appreciate that you're you're trying to get us all there because uh, if 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 tripods ever goes away because of technology like what you're describing and and practices mm-hmm. like that, I will be so happy. I I never want to see another animal you know live mm-hmm. without a leg because they yeah. they are they can be happy, but they do have there is a price to pay. And so I'm I'm so grateful that that you're working on things like this. Um, and uh, I let's let's talk about the the external prosthetics now. Um, mm-hmm. I, I understand you're doing you're doing 3D printing for the implants. Are you 3D printing the external prosthetics as well too? Uh, sometimes we'll we'll oh, wow. 3D print parts. Um, I am doing some work to try to maybe simplify some aspects or optimize. Um, some aspects of this prosthetic uh, device. Uh, there mm-hmm. is a lot of opportunity for miscommunication and uh, the planning and the, the design of this device is a little bit left at the mercy of you know individual fabricators. If you want around the country, everybody has a different philosophy about what's needed. So I'm very interested in understanding, you know, uh, success and failures, if you want, and trying to improve communication and precision along the way to try to kind of have better outcomes for patients. Sometimes we 3D print uh, the foot itself or the, the, the residual limb so we can have a more faithful representation of the leg, and we can do that using multi-material so you have a soft uh, soft tissue, if you want, that is also uh, rubbery, and then you have hard bones in it, and so that can. It, this, while this is kind of interesting for big dogs, it's particularly helpful for small dogs because casting the conventional method to start an exoprosthesis is to make a cast, and a cast of a little dog or a cat are going to be very, uh, very inaccurate in the big scheme of things. You know, the error will carry will be more important uh, in small patients and in big patients. So we can use 3D printing to replicate limbs uh, based on CT scans. We can, use, we can 3D print portions of prosthesis. You could 3D print an entire prosthesis, but it wouldn't be uh, cost effective. Uh, the materials tend to be weak with polymer 3D printing. There are lots of newer technologies that are printing nylon and Kevlar and, and glass-filled nylon that are much more sturdy but 
uh, you know, the, the conventional materials are more affordable. And it's mm-hmm. not important to 3D print. What's important is to actually work and have a comprehensive strategy about what a device should have, what kind of uh, uh, contact surface it will have, what kind of hinges should be in it, uh, how is it going to be attached to the body, what kind of straps are we going to use, what kind of uh, foot or uh, you know, sole the, the, or material we're going to use uh, on, that will contact the ground. All these things have to be kind of worked out. And unfortunately, it's very hard for a veterinarian with, without specialized training to, to make this decision because it's hard to find that information. It, you know, I'm so glad you discussed this because I know that people get really excited when when a, a headline about a, a dog with a 3D printed limb um, pops up and we see a video of a limb that some high school kids made on their 3D printer at school mm-hmm. and it's all very yeah. heartwarming and, and we love to see the dog running around, but there's so much more to that picture and that's why mm-hmm. it's so important for people to work with someone who understands, who has what limited information there is available um, for mm-hmm. prosthetic limbs um, to to create the limb for the animal and not just go with the uh, kid down the street who has access to a printer. Um, yeah, so so let's let's talk about this. Um, which amputee pets are good candidates for any kind of prosthetic limb, um, external prosthetic limb? Um, does size or, or age play a role in their ability to adapt? Um, most. Important factor would be how much residual limb they have. Since they have two healthy joints, like a shoulder and an elbow, or a hip and a knee, then they are probably okay. The more limb they have, the more predictably successful a device will be. If they have an ankle and they're missing everything below the ankle, we see partial amputations for tumors of the digits or the toes or the toenails, uh, soft tissue problems, uh, sarcoma, distally, then those are great candidates for devices. Maybe an, a tumor around the ankle or the wrist will also work reasonably well. Anything above becomes more and more challenging. Anything above the knee and elbow makes it nearly impossible. Same thing as what we discussed earlier, maybe having a bit of a laid-back personality, well-socialized, obedient, a dog not too crazy might work in our best interest in this situation and an owner that's kind of a troubleshooting owner that will pay attention to details and follow instructions and interacts effectively with the medical team will will help with the success also. There, there's a lot to consider there. Um, so really it's what it comes down to is the longer the limb that's left, the better. And mm-hmm. the the decision needs to be made, obviously, before the surgery. Um, is there ever yeah. any hope of, of somebody who comes to you and, and has already done the surgery but doesn't have two joints left, maybe just one? Do you ever get a prosthetic to work on those patients? No. Yeah. I don't think so. Uh, that's like you know, that's like cut to the chase, like right there. Boom. Yeah. I, I <laughs> yeah. think uh, if uh, you show up and you don't have an elbow, uh, mm-hmm. Even if you bring an enormous amount of money uh, and energy to the process, 
Um, I mean, short of doing a very sophisticated transdermal implant with a kind of a computerized uh, elbow, just like mm-hmm. you have computerized knee, they would work similarly, uh, that are used in people that don't have a knee, uh, you would uh, really be, unfortunately, not a candidate for a prostate. Same thing, if you were missing the knee and you just had the femur, it would be uh, impossible to have an effective device. I mean, you could put the something, wrap the leg in something, but it won't be of any any functional use. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, thank, that's thank saving you for these that. joints. But if you had a tumor at the top of your leg, then, you know, you should have a discussion about limb sparing uh, to save that leg. It, it would depend on what is exactly happening and, again, who your medical team is. You can't transform your medical team just because you want to save a leg. You know, people are kind of set in their ways and everybody mm-hmm. tends to learn very slowly, which is good. It's healthy. So people don't get into too much trouble trying to do things they are un- unfamiliar with. Right. And, and limb sparing is one of those things that... Um, we don't hear a lot about here, but mm-hmm. I understand um, we have some members in Germany who said over in Germany they're doing it quite a bit. Is, is, that, what, um, is that true? I think we're doing it uh, more in the U.S. than in Germany, but, you know, it's done very generally by very sophisticated groups. You know, the one that comes to mind is Colorado State University Cancer Center there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they do limb sparing. They have been doing limb sparing. A number of other programs uh, do it around the country. Florida maybe comes to mind as a, another one. Uh, you know, other universities have the means and the knowledge to do it, including UC Davis here. But again, the screening the patient and determining whether the dog is a candidate is very critical and multifactorial. It's not something you can decide by looking at your dog in the eyes. It's something you have to to be staging the tumor and looking at local invasiveness and bone invasiveness. You know, it usually requires good CT scanning, maybe a bone scan. And, and again, the surgical team has to be trained to do so. So it's a, it's, you know, it's still a very limited and sophisticated and multi disciplinary um, process that mm-hmm. is not going to be uh, available to everybody. Yeah, that's, that's um, unfortunate at this point, but maybe eventually. Um, yeah, exactly. What about for those, those animals that are good candidates for a, a, an external prosthetic limb, what, what is the rehab like? How does, how does that work, and, and what kind of commitment is, is required of the person and the animal to get through it? Is it an ongoing thing? Will they always need rehab, or is it just until they adapt? Uh, the success is very, very little is known, if you want, from the scientific literature about why prosthesis would work or not work, but Generally, they have to be very stable, and we tend to look at them. You know, you mentioned a child 3D printing a little device. Mm-hmm. Training a dog to use a prosthesis is about as complex as it gets in orthopedics, and so uh, and appreciating the stability of a device or the lack of stability of a device is also a very sophisticated task. So. We can, uh, devices are going to be used successfully if they are well designed, you know, well structured, 
and connected kind of very in stable fashion to the leg itself. You can't just do a shell and try to reinvent the wheel and hope to get lucky. You won't get lucky. <laughs> you have to have something that, you know, is stable in all directions, and that requires kind of solid maybe mechanical knowledge if you want. It's like repairing a fracture if you want. It's very similar to that. And then beyond oh, wow. that, when the, the leg is placed in a device, the dog generally considers the device like a foreign thing, and we will tend to, to have to train these dogs, maybe like a dog that's recovering from a big surgery. So it requires kind of fine rehabilitation to eliminate the tendency not to use the device. So, and we call that disuse. Basically, dogs have kind of limb disuse. They don't use their leg spontaneously in many situations. So we have to do a bit of a complex rehab also in some dogs. If the device is stable and there is enough limb left, sometimes dogs will spontaneously use their device pretty much immediately. And so then we don't have to do a lot of rehab. Some dogs uh, require more rehab. It's a little bit unpredictable, but generally with proper design and proper fitting and adjustment, fine-tuning the device fit on the leg, we can be successful pretty quickly. That is very hopeful. I like hearing that. Um, I'd, I'd like to find out from you, you talked about how, um, you know, the right kinds of, of prosthetics need to be made in order to be successful, but who are the, the people best qualified to make one of these devices? I know there's, they're popping up all over the place, and I'm just wondering, is there a, a list of criteria that, you know, that we can refer to? What should we look for if we want to look at this as an option? Uh, I think you would want to look for past, past success, I think. That would be important since the field is so uncharted, so they are you mm-hmm. know, professional companies with more experience. Uh, they don't always behave or plan or execute things the same way. Every company is kind of set in their ways. Uh, so, um, it's always in your best interest to find somebody local but that has experience, and that's not always an option. So, you know, you could say, well, we have remote places in different states that might be an option, but generally that's not ideal because it's hard to do the feeding you know, because your veterinarian has to be the interface maybe, but not every veterinarian is very excited about trying to fine-tune things or train dogs to use them. That's really uh, Mm -hmm. uh, an unusual task for most veterinarians and not one they look forward to be doing. Uh, So having a local uh, prosthetist uh, would be a good thing to have. It's not always easy to find. So, you know, maybe seeking remote advice, uh, you know, would be uh, building a library of resources such as, you know, and I think we, we should collaborate together on assembling some resources that your members can uh, read and educate themselves. The more educated they are, the less frustrated they will be and the more effective the process can be and the more, more efficient. Often decisions about processes have to be made very quickly, and so people should maybe either learn ahead of time or, or learn quickly so they make good decisions about what they can do in their own state or in their own like, local environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, we are definitely working on, on building that information. Um, 
What about people who design human uh, prosthetic limbs? Mm-hmm. Is there a crossover? Can they successfully develop one for animals too, or should should you? Is there any kind of certification for the veterinary um, mm-hmm. prosthetic designers? I mean, I know there's a lot of human prosthetic designers who are doing them for animals. Is that a good thing? Um, it's not a bad thing because they have okay. high standards. Obviously, they are very well trained, so it, it's mm-hmm. like it's a bit like what happened in physical therapy in the field of human physical therapy when it kind of opened up 20 years ago towards uh, vet med. You know, you had, you had veterinarian that knew pathology well but knew nothing about how to do rehab, and you had physical therapists who knew very well how to do rehab but knew nothing about the pathology, and the, the hmm. strength came from the two working together before people got trained in sports medicine and rehab on the vet side of things, uh, there was no such thing, and you, you, you had to kind of communicate with the, the other part. And I think we are at that stage. We are 20 years behind in prosthetics where uh, there are very, very few vets that would know how to design a device or, you know, or even communicate with a prosthetist, but they don't know what they need. And so the prosthetist tends to take complete control, but they don't understand biomechanics and limb use and gait as well as they should. And so potentially mm-hmm. they might be doing things that are a little bit uh, suboptimal, if you want. So working with a company that already has success and experience and has made mistakes already uh, is uh, going to be in, in your best interest. Or assembling a team that has a veterinarian that is well-versed with rehabilitation, for example, and orthopedics uh, combined with a prosthetist that gives you the best chance for success. The field does not have certification for veterinary prosthetics. It's a small universe, as you can imagine, so it's not Mm -hmm. the number one thing on the priority list, but, you know, it's being discussed, uh, not the certification, but the, the, the theme is being discussed often enough and it's needed enough that it's bound to get more popular uh, in the future and, and more formalized and, you know, hopefully we get more research also in the future. Oh, thank you for explaining that. That's a really good comparison. I, I appreciate that between the, the rehab and the prosthetics. That's perfect. Um, I, I am taking up so much of your time today, doctor. I really, really appreciate it. I can't believe 30 minutes has just gone by. We're actually over 30 minutes. So, um, I hear your buzzer going off and I, I want to let you get back to work, but, um, do you have any final thoughts about, um, the technologies you're working with and, and what we might expect in the future? Yeah, I think things are moving in the right direction and we shouldn't be frustrated by, you know, the fact that things are evolving, you know, maybe too slowly. So I think uh, we just, uh, as as a dog owner, everybody should have high standards and ask a lot of questions. And if your gut feeling is that that leg should be saved, then you need to fight to save that leg and, uh, you know, never be uh, shy about reaching out at somebody far away to have a discussion about it, share, make pictures, share, you know, fight for what you believe might be a right thing and listen to the advice that you get. And hopefully, uh, you know, amputations are going to become a little bit uh, managed a bit differently in the future. 
Oh, I hope so too. Thank you so much, doctor. Really, really appreciate all of your, your wonderful advice. And we'll have this up in our blog real soon, but um, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it very much. And I hope to chat again. Yes, definitely. Uh, thank you so much for your time, doctor. We can't wait to share this information. Listeners can learn more about the work you're doing at vetmed.ucdavis.edu and find all past ty- Tripod Talk Radio podcasts at downloads.tripods.com. Next time on Tripod Talk Radio, learn more about canine amputation recovery and find the best gear for three-legged dogs at tripods.com. Thank you for tuning in. Subscribe to Tripod Talk Radio for more pet amputation tips from experts and claim your free gift just for listeners at downloads.tripods.com slash podcast.